I would say that cities are a new thing. I think 3200 BCE is not all that long ago, and the jury is still out on you know, whether this experiment is truly sustainable or whether we are accelerating toward real irreversible disaster. Hello, everyone. Thanks so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira for Episode 3. This week, we turn our attention to cities. And uh, this is something that perhaps is just part of our everyday life. Probably the vast majority of you listening right now live in cities or a metropolitan area, broadly speaking. And uh, in some ways, it's so much integrated into how we live and how we look at the world and experience the world that perhaps we don't ever really think about how that shapes us, or um, more importantly, how much the urbanization of our life and population is quite new and quite distinct from almost all of human history, right? That, this, that we are in really new territory in terms of living in highly concentrated, dense, urban or metropolitan areas. And to me, I think the rural-urban question and rural-urban divide is one way of thinking about the wider social issues and controversies shaping politics around the world today. And thinking about this distinction between rural and urban areas or high density and low density population areas is a very useful and analytically powerful way to try to understand a host of contemporary phenomenon, both politically, socially, culturally, economically. And fortunately, as it turns out, I happen to be closely acquainted with and very good friends with two esteemed scholars who study cities, both historically and in the present day, and think about urban politics in a way that I think is going to be very helpful for us in terms of trying to wrap our heads around the way that urban areas and urbanization as a contemporary phenomenon, as a historical phenomenon, as a social, political, and cultural phenomenon informs and shapes the times we are experiencing in the present. So it is my great pleasure and honor to bring to you Professor Joshua K. Leon, who is currently the chair of the Department of Political Science and International Studies at Iona College. Josh is a frequent contributor to The Progressive and his writing on cities has appeared in venues including Descent, Third World Quarterly, City, Planning Perspectives, and Metropolis. He is currently working on finalizing a book manuscript entitled World Cities in History, Power and Statecraft in City Life from Uruk to Amsterdam, uh, which is just, I'm really excited for that book to come out. Uh, I know Josh has been working on that for several years now, and I'm certain it's going to be a major and important statement on trying to understand cities and the role they have played in shaping politics over the last several thousand years of human history. Next, I'd like to introduce Professor Jeffrey Carroll, who is an assistant professor of political science and the chair of the Center for Data and Society at Chestnut Hill College in Philadelphia. His scholarly interests are on American politics, and he pays special attention to urban affairs, social geography, and civic engagement. Recently, Jeff has served as an invited speaker, both nationally and internationally, in events centered on race, political culture, 
and campaigns and elections. It also bears noting that Jeff is the head and director of the Beats Lab at Chestnut Hill College, which is a hip-hop studio on the grounds of Chestnut Hill College that provides an opportunity for students to use hip-hop as a musical art form to engage the political and social discourses that are shaping the time. Jeff has also been interviewed for major publications such as the New York Times and Newsweek, calling upon his expertise in the area of urban politics and the politics of Philadelphia more specifically. It bears mentioning here that both Jeff and Josh hold the distinction, as with me, of being holders of PhDs in political science from the fantastic program at Temple University. So this is just a real delight for me. Jeff and Josh and I were all doing our graduate work at Temple at the same time in the mid-aughts, I guess is what they call them these days. Graduate school is a bit of an intense process and and experience, uh, one that is very stressful. You're not only worrying about the classes you're in, but worrying about where this is all going, whether or not you are basically fiddling away years of your life uh, to no no avail. Uh, And so, you know, within that crucible, very deep and close bonds are forged. And both Jeff and Josh are two of my dearest friends. Uh, I should especially mention that even going further back, uh, my whole journey to being a working and, I guess, quasi-functioning political scientist goes back to uh, the campus of Cal State Sacramento, September of 2002, when I encountered a plucky recent grad named Joshua Leon in our required Intro to IR Theory class. We hit it off from the first day and have been close friends and collaborators over the 18 years since then. Uh, Josh and I helped to form the Student Political Forum on the campus of Cal State Sacramento, which put on various events trying to work against the Bush administration at the time's policy for the invasion of Iraq. Obviously, we did not succeed. And in our failure to stop the Iraq war, we forged a pact to make ourselves even more irrelevant and become political scientists. And here we are today. But uh, all jokes aside, it's just really special for me to have both Josh and Jeff, and and watching them kind of flourish and grow as scholars and as people who are involved and and front and center in these important contemporary debates. And both of them really uh, have increasingly tended to focus on cities and urban politics. So I thought choosing this topic would be interesting for the reasons I stated at the beginning, but also a way to kind of bring these two immense intellects and thinkers that I have the privilege of knowing for so many years into the discussion here in the caves of Altamira. And just a brief note before we get started with our discussion, it bears mentioning that this conversation was recorded January 6th in the morning here in Japan, which was the evening of January 5th in the United States. So uh, literally the night before, kind of all hell broke loose in the U.S. Capitol. So you may be wondering why we don't even discuss that at all. Well, in some ways, this conversation is a step into the past. As we know, in the caves of Altamira, what we try to do is take a bit of a step back, right? We have our toe in the day-to-day in the current affairs of the world, which we're definitely going to get into in this conversation, but also trying to take a step back and think about the broader historical, political, and social phenomenon that are underpinning our experience of the here and now. So before we hop into the discussion, I'd just like to thank all of you once again for listening, for supporting the show, for sharing the show on social media forums, for sharing this with your friends and and recommending it. Along those lines, I would always ask you to please 
comment and rate our show on whatever podcast platform you're listening to. And of course, we'd always welcome and love to hear your suggestions and comments. Uh, we can be found on Facebook at facebook.com slash the caves of Altamira, which will take you to our page, which you can also find a link to our group there. Please join our group if you haven't done so. And I'm always eager to hear your comments, questions, suggestions, and so forth. Okay, so with those matters handled, I am now excited to turn it over to our discussion. Okay, well, welcome to Jeff and Josh. Thank you so much for joining us here in the Caves of Altamira for what is sure to be a really interesting discussion of urban areas and urbanness, maybe to say, and politics and culture and kind of history surrounding urban areas and the ways that they both are shaping the times we live in and provide a foundation for the politics and tumult and, and various issues that are playing out here in the present day. So first thing I wanted to do is just try to get our bearings. Um, we have two really accomplished and, and very knowledgeable scholars, but also people who live in urban areas. Uh, Josh lives in Manhattan. Jeff lives in South Philadelphia. There's no worry, Josh, we're not going to hold that against you. We know South Philadelphia is clearly preferable to the confines of, of your tiny island of Manhattan, but um, <laughs> we'll, we'll let, let, that, uh, let that slide for today. But really, first, I just wanted to get to this foundational question of what is an urban area? Like, what are some ways to think about urban areas? And maybe we'll turn to Josh. The idea of what a city is has actually gotten more and more complicated as cities themselves have gotten more and more complicated. There's the physical aspect of the city, right? A contiguous built environment, contiguous housing Lewis Mumford defined a city as people and their containers. But cities are um, all those things. Uh, the, the definition of a city has gotten murky. We define cities in different ways, for example, in the United States than we do in uh, China, for example. Um, so cities can be defined as contiguous urban areas, physical environments, commuter zones, um, exurbs are, of course, satellite outposts of the city in rural spaces, um, or simply a set of administrative boundaries. But cities are also places of concentration. And as cities have grown more complicated, and in the 21st century, rooted more in um, non-physical and virtual and knowledge production, the term global city has become popular to describe concentrations of, of knowledge production. So in a sense, you know, cities are these kinds of virtual spaces where knowledge is produced or this mysterious thing called uh, finance, right, uh, which is metaphysical in nature, but ultimately involves concentrated in cities, the control over physical thing. Yeah, it's really interesting. And I like that notion of what a city produces. And, and certainly, in some ways, that might be, you know, we could perhaps kind of connect that to this broader notion of like kind of a global division of labor, where we still do have some large urban areas and, and quite a few around the world that are still centered on physical production. 
producing consumer goods or, or other kind of physical products, but you note that particularly in line with this notion of a global city, increasingly we're seeing that cities are concentrating on the production of things like knowledge or uh, technology or culture, which are in, in some ways kind of non-material products, right? And so this is a very uh, interesting idea of what is a city. Cities are, I like the notion you said, containers, collectivities brought together to build and, and make things. And uh, in many ways that we've seen over the last several decades, the rise of, and, and this can be even not just cultural products or technological products, but financial products and the somewhat magic involved in, in uh, modern finance is, is kind of centered in these uh, global, air, global cities as you referred to them. Uh, and, and on that note, I, I kind of wanted to ask Jeff about th this very idea of cities and Josh uses notion of containers. I think that's an interesting idea of a, of a, a, a container of, of collectivities and just this notion of density, right? That how living in areas of, of higher human density affects us and, and shapes us in, in ways um, involving politics or culture or religion or family and so forth. So um, I just wanted to, to ask Jeff about that. Sure. Uh, just to uh, push Josh's uh, reference to Lewis Mumford, Mumford said that the city is, is like a play, right? The container that we live in a confined space, but that we are looking that container because we are looking to see how we negotiate it. And so certainly that there's this constant negotiation of people within a defined space and that changes uh, over time. So uh, certainly when the Mumford was writing in, writing in the 1950s and the advent of the, the study of urban affairs is just thinking about how uh, space has changed, how people change and how people uh, negotiate with one another uh, to be able to live, to work, and to to play, right? No, and and I think that you know really ties into increasingly the narratives that we see shaping the increasing discord and tumult in societies around the world, and and it takes on all of these different forms and, and formulations. But the urban rural axis is at the center of so many of these. And this is why I'm so fortunate to have the opportunity to talk to both of you about that. And, and for the rays that both of you describe, seeing urban areas as these central points of collections of capital and, and this idea of kind of this dark power is also seeing cities as bastions of liberality and connectivity and um, intermixings of different societies and culture and resistance to both of them, to seeing cities as either these places where the powerful conspire to keep the weak in, in check um, financially or cities as a place where these libertine forces of high culture and, and so forth work to break down the moral bearings of society. And I think in some ways it is connected to, to what Josh and Jeff both brought up in terms of what, what is produced in cities, what do we believe is produced in cities, and how does density and the, the very fact of living in higher density areas change our attitudes and change our understanding of our relationship with others. So on that note, I, I also wanted to throw it to Josh, um, both as someone who studies and, and writes about cities, but uh, someone who lives in, a, in one of the densest areas in the world. Um, how, how do you think that density impacts or affects 
our experience of the social world. Part of the reason I, I live in Manhattan is sort of out of a fascination with this idea of density. And, you know, I want to throw a paradox out there. I think um, something you said in that question a minute ago definitely is consistent with the history of cities. Cities are definitely two things at once. I mean, cities are, in a sense, islands of administration, which means also surveillance and uh, control over the populations living in them. Cities are also places, uh, the, the, the famous uh, German saying, urban air makes you free, right? Um, I'm, I'm, I'm giving that out of context, but cities are also places where people from all walks of life can be in a place and feel welcome and not bothered. You know, how can they be both of those things at once? The first city, someone asked me the other day, well, when did we first have really entrenched class divides um, in human history? And I would say um, 3200 BCE. Um, that was the advent of the first trip. <laughs> hey, I know. Hey, everyone, a- I, want to just, I want to just pop in here. <laughs> it's just, if you wonder, like, what is the value out of the case of Altamira? You're going to get guests that are going to say, you know, this shit began in 3200 BC. Was it 3200 or 32,000? 3200. 3200. 3200. So this is what you, this is what you get on the case of Altamira. Some people, they might be talking about 600 AD, 800 AD. We're taking it back to 3200 BC. Old school. Okay. So yeah, I just wanted to, to, to come in there and, and give you an idea of, of what, we bring, what we bring on this show. And that's one thing. Go ahead, John. Well, I feel like my work is done here. I've answered the question. It's 3200 BCE. Now we can all go. Go home. Well, I'm BCE, God Almighty. I'm about to... <laughs> I forgot. Jesus. I apologize. BCE. Um, that's my, my, my secularization of, of time. But, but that, was, that was when um, the first true city, I think, in the modern sense, comes to fruition, and that's Uruk in southern Iraq. And the city was kind of a machine for administration. And that's so, I think, you know, comparable to the 21st century global city. Even writing wasn't for poetry. I mean, this city was doing some things. It was producing the first information storage, cuneiform, on clay tablet. And, of course, instead of the Epic of Gilgamesh, the first writing was used for administration to define professions, to define um, hierarchies, to run um, manufacturing, to catalog items and ownership. And, you know, people by and large didn't like this. In fact, you know, the, the, the city wall, this feature of, of early cities was not to keep invaders out. Obviously, it served that function, but it was to keep people from deserting. <laughs> you know, <laughs> interesting. Um, that's right. Yeah, and and desertion was a serious problem that cities cities had, and so you know the 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 city is kind of built around this idea of surveillance. I mean, there's other extreme examples. Uh, city wall posts, watchtowers were used to kind of monitor where people went, and so on. Right. Well, I mean, one thing just, you know, kind of thinking on this whole motif and, and kind of the paradox of, of cities in, in terms of what you're saying, the, the, where they, they could be these sites of cultural progression and advances, but also these kind of sites of density in terms of administration, oversight, 
monitoring. Obviously, density does provide opportunities or, or in, you know, expand the opportunities to monitor and control, particularly in an era before digital technology gave states or governments the ability to monitor um, from afar. You know, we forget that thousands of years ago or hundreds of years ago, it was good old fashioned just following people, keeping tabs on them, having people keep tabs on people keeping tabs and, and so on and so on, right? Um, so I, I think that's, that's really fascinating. And another paradox that comes to mind, and, and maybe I want to throw this to Jeff, is that cities are at one time kind of the expression of, of a modern life or, or modernity. And, and as Josh noted that, you know, perhaps that stretches quite a bit farther back than we commonly think about. But it, to the extent that we think of cities as these kinds of expressions of high technology, high culture, uh, and so forth, the paradox is that at once they are these kinds of manifestations of these peak notions of, of human organization, human culture, human technology, and so forth, but are also wholly dependent on resources from outside, right? That I, It's funny, I had, I had a student do her senior thesis um, that I advised this year, and, and her project was about this very paradox that cities are, by their nature, unsustainable internally, right? That for the most part, they require resources to, to come into them. Uh, and so they, they are, in some ways, these expressions of strength and, and virility of, of a polity, but at the same time are fundamentally, you know, have an underlying kind of weakness. And, and Josh was talking about city walls, and that makes think of the old way that you defeat a city is the siege. You just surround it and don't let anything in. I mean, this is really ugly stuff. And then the people just die and starve to death. And you know, we don't need to go down that road, but it could get really nasty and ugly, right? Because in, in some ways, the siege grows out of this notion that cities are wholly kind of dependent. And, and one more point before I throw it over to Jeff is that this really got me thinking about um, an observation I read in, in the work of uh, Ernest Gellner about, you know, kind of rise of nationalism and national modernity. And he called the modern existence, particularly this modern urban existence, is kind of a, it's kind of like an aquatic tank. And so that's when Josh said container that really flashed in my mind in that we as modern human beings, just as the fish needs to be in water and couldn't survive outside of water, like we are all developed and created and, and shaped as human beings to basically be unable to live independently. And I'm not trying to romanticize like the rugged individual and so forth, but our life is predicated on having access to things like grocery stores, to things like repair people, to things like what have you, right? We are, we are highly dependent upon this. And so this idea of, again, urban life and modern life representing this power over nature, but also our weakness. And I mean, certainly this is a theme that Rousseau picks up. So, uh, and that who we talked about in, in, in last episode. So I, I kind of wanted to just. This is a whole, I guess I've just opened up a whole bunch of stuff. So I don't know. I'll just throw it over to Jeff and see, see, what, see what you got to say about that. I'm terribly influenced by the geographers, by urban geographers who contend that the city is this constant negotiation of inclusivity and exclusivity. The, just the idea, even to Josh's example of the wall about who comes in, who comes out, who do we let out? Can people get out? Is an idea there about inclusivity and exclusivity. So I think that what you both are alluding to is the paradox there that indeed modernity exists in urban areas, right? Uh, this is the epicenter of information and knowledge exchange, uh, technological advancement. But we always have to ask, as the geographers do, which landscapes for who and where 
right? And I think that these are certainly are are fundamental to the questions that arise with the discussion of the global city. And ones that I'm particularly concerned about is how private is the city becoming? And the idea that what we've learned over time, well after, uh, what is it, 3200 BC, <laughs> where we are now in the 21st century, <laughs> is that when they do work, they as in, in urban areas and with cities, is that we've learned that they're grander than ever before. Uh, there were, there are, uh, the scale is to something uh, that we haven't ever seen, that most of the world, three quarters of it, live in, in these types of areas. And when they can work, they include. And uh, when they don't work, they exclude, and, and certainly there is different variations of that, and quite a lot of heterogeneity as you go place to place and city to city. And on that theme of kind of inclu inclusion and exclusion, maybe bringing this into a, a much more set of, of contemporary phenomenon and how urban spaces, and I, I like your idea of bringing in urban geography that is part of, you know, really important part of the background that I think you bring before you, you uh, turned to the dark side and, and came to the political science department. You were, uh, uh, you know, uh, in the light of, of urban geography, maybe how urban spaces kind of shape us in ways that maybe we're not even fully cognizant of. And what's interesting is this metaphor of the walled city. Walled cities used to, are, used to be an actual thing, but now perhaps thinking about it more as a metaphor of the of the walls that exist in cities where there's no walls. There's walls, but there's no wall, right? And and that really. Thinking, talking to you guys always makes me think about my time living in Philadelphia and um, living in the Fairmount section of Philadelphia. And just to put a finer point on it, I lived uh, uh, on, you know, on 22nd and Poplar Street. And if you went to 19th and Poplar, which is about three, four blocks away, there's a few non-numbered streets in, in between there. Uh, it was a different world, right? The, the neighborhood I lived in was probably 80, 90% white. Uh, and if you went to 19th and Poplar, and it's, it's about 80, 90% black. And that was not, uh, you know, in some ways that formed a, me a metaphysical wall. And I, and I remember one thing really stuck out to me. There was like this Fairmount Times. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Philadelphia, Fairmount was kind of a, an, an area that was targeted for what we would commonly ascribe to the process of gentrification. And there was this article about this big debate of the Fairmount Housing Commission. I mean, obviously we didn't, I didn't own a house. I wasn't like on this kind of committee or didn't even know about it. But it was this whole debate about whether um, 20th Street, the east side of 20th Street, I'm not kidding, should be considered part of Fairmount or not, right? And to me, that all in this idea of the wall, like what, you know, because Fairmount was supposed to give you this distinction that was going to increase the value of your house. And, and it was like 20th Street. And it's like, should the east side of 20th Street, so we're talking about sides of streets, not even all streets, be considered part of Fairmount. And I was like, wow. And, and all that, you know, and, that, and I think that's so, you know, in terms of barriers. And so I, I don't know, Jeff, what do you think? I mean, you, li you live in Philly. I mean, you see this stuff a lot. What, what do you think about that? Indeed, uh, those walls can uh, exist as, as, as you contend physical barriers. Uh, they're one that can be, it can exist as policy barriers, such, right? Um, mm. uh, redlining, for example, could be an existence of a, policy barrier that's there that certainly has effects on the on the landscape at large in which 
you could you could see differences and uh, as you dictate differences in use you can certainly set up barriers i guess what what, I, what was interesting to me is that sometimes these notions of inclusion and exclusion are the function of invisible barrier in in the whole notion and, and this is something that obviously black americans um in particular are well acquainted with who quote unquote is supposed to be where quote unquote right and that is a we don't think about that as a wall but that is a wall because if, if there's physical areas where your just mere existence is considered potentially a, a source of danger or alarm that is a mechanism of creating a barrier and and i think that really ties into a lot of of dynamics not between just rural and urban, but, but certainly obviously within urban areas in the United States. And I, I kind of wanted to take this theme and, and parlay it into a discussion of cities and politics in the United States. And this is an area where hopefully we can kind of drill down for, for a little bit and cities in American politics in the, in the 2020 election and just questions of this rural urban divide in U.S. politics. And maybe uh, we'll throw that to Josh. You know, I... Um have a hard time wrapping my mind around this question about the urban-rural divide. In some sense, all the things we've been talking about about city life just seem so natural to all of us, right? Because, you know, I think to my knowledge, none of us have ever not lived in a metropolitan area. The world urbanization prospects, which I'm looking at right now, or just kind of looking at before I logged on here, has the U.S. Uh, uh, well over 80% urbanized. So if there, there's not too much of a divide, you know, you know, I, I think the, the U.S. has left behind, you know, a lot uh, that I hate the term stages of development, but clearly we've shifted so far away from living off the land, from homesteading, if we ever really had a homesteading culture, it's been gone since at least 1900. And so, so in some ways, what we call rural are just kind of urban outposts, you know, right. uh, just right. kind right. of urban outposts in kind of open spaces. You know, a red America to me is not necessarily this, this group of, of homesteading or frontiersmen or farmers living off the land. Um, it's, it's ex-urban America. It's bedroom communities outside of even liberal cities. In my mind, that's powering the red map. Um, now I know you, you follow, uh, you know, the demographic trends in American politics and voting trends closer than I do. Um, but, but it's always a little bit hard for me to swallow this kind of idea of there's a rural America and an urban America and, and they're in kind of opposition to one another. Even rural spaces are kind of gentrifying. You know, I was just reading there's this part of Montana that's free and open spaces. It has this kind of, kind of homesteading tradition where for generations people have lived off the land. And that's dying out in favor of Los Angeles homebuyers who are coming <laughs> there looking for, looking for, you know, all the beauty of Montana's valleys and things like that. Um, so I'm a little bit skeptical when you look at just the, the share of Americans who, who really live a kind of uh, life that could be defined as rural in the holistic sense, right? Surrounded by empty land or uninhabited land, yeah, but, but kind of living off the land, so rare. 
And, and maybe the nostalgic part of that, right? We want to kind of reach back to this real and imagined past. And, and that's how, you know, we, we, we mimic that almost with our, with our suburbs, right? There are these kinds of urban spaces where homes are surrounded by lawns. Uh, everyone has their plot. It's almost aesthetically and visually kind of represents this idea of a homesteading community that Frank Lloyd Wright might have influenced or, or lionized, right? Even, even he was working mm. when that kind of um, lifestyle was, was long gone. Or maybe we believe that's more moral and so on. I just have a little bit of difficulty that, that it's real. Well, I think, okay, so then this is a good, a good uh, question to throw over to Jeff, because I think on some level, I, I agree, and I think this gets into where we started with what is a rural area or what is an urban area. I think in some ways, your point's well taken that rural areas, as they would have been understood even 100 years ago, probably have almost largely vanished, right, to, to some extent, or not vanished, but are, are you know, winnowed down to very small pockets um, uh, across the country. But at the same time, there's a relativity in terms of density, right? That if you live five miles from downtown Chicago versus 45 miles, um, you are still probably technically in the Chicago metro area. But the person who lives five miles from downtown Chicago and the person who lives 45 miles from downtown Chicago, um, just to give an example, is probably inhabiting a, a much different cultural and political and perhaps even kind of ideological space. And so, Maybe, yeah, I, I agree with you, Josh, that 45 miles outside of Chicago is probably not a rural area as we would conceive of it um, traditionally. But it, I think there is a divide there between that kind of group. Uh, so I don't know. What do you think, Jeff? I have to say that I struggle like Josh does in trying to characterize the divide. The, the, the population of the, the United States in 1900, right, is a fraction of what it is now, say 76 million. But at that time, very interesting that perhaps then did we have a true urban-rural divide that we were hovering around 50% urbanization rate in the United States compared to where it is now, Josh said, upwards of 80%. Noting that those suburban bedroom communities, those ex-urban communities, the, when we talk about urban areas in the United States, usually characterize them as, uh, as metro regions. So not just talking about the city of Philadelphia, but also including South Jersey with it, right? Also including practically the whole state of Delaware and, and Northern Maryland to include in that metro area, right? Uh, New York City, including uh, Southern Connecticut and Northern New Jersey. It's difficult when you, you know that the sheer population of folks that live in in urban areas has uh is is just most of the united states but the way that i believe it's characterized in the media and so forth is that perhaps it's it's one of cultural connotations perhaps that that it, it's the way that it's framed in the media today let's just say in and around how the divide was characterized in around the election that cities to some people were on the economic incline right that were so progressive but to a fault right uh elite but to the fault right and that that rural area areas were forgotten on the decline uh economically impoverished 
Right. right. Uh, and and that I think that the narrative there was one of two societies, right? Uh, two candidates in two societies, one that might be thriving and one that may be hurting. So uh, I, I guess I say all that to say is that when, when you try to substantively define what the divide is, it just in terms of all of the ways, the myriad of ways that you can characterize urban areas, as Josh noted and I noted in the, in the introduction, that becomes very, very difficult because, like Josh says, <laughs> so many of the elements of rural America today <laughs> is, is practically has as urban definition. But the way that it's characterized in, uh, in and around the election and so forth is definitely one, I think, that of a cultural spin cultural difference. I'm glad you finished off returning to that issue of, of culture and, and cultural divisions because of the particular uh, set of historical institutions and, and ideological bearings in the United States. I mean, certainly it's, it's almost impossible to disaggregate this from racial politics, racial attitudes. And, you know, when we, when we think about rural culture, to the extent, and this is, uh, I think, something I want to be, hopefully we can dig into a little bit more because perhaps it, it might be belied by the actual data on who lives in um, less urban or less dense areas. But at least in, in the American mind, particularly in, in, in the white American mind, rural areas are a bastion of, of kind of white culture or, or white society, or at least our ideas of rural and urban intersects with so many axes that, that it is at the center of. Obviously, race in America is, is another one. And we've seen that play out not only in the 2020 election, but in the response to it. I mean, in Donald Trump targeting black majority cities, Detroit, Philadelphia, Atlanta, you know, and saying that these places are corrupt and the site of duplicity and backdoor dealing, uh, which plays upon longstanding white American tropes about Black Americans um, you know, that date back centuries. And so I, I just kind of wanted to throw that back to you, Jeff. Obviously, I, I know there's so much to unpack. I mean, books and books and books have been written about this. But in, in your view, how, how do those things come together in, in terms of politics, elections, urban areas, race? I mean, how, how do these kind of forces, how can we understand them in the ways they coalesce? I, I think, unfortunately, the perpetuation of the narrative of the other whether it's uh, rural America looking at the urban and vice versa, has been terribly exploited in, in our politics. And the way that you just characterized those intersections, right, about this is uh, a question of geography plus economics plus race, right, and conflating those all, just as you said, that rural America is white. Uh, Right and that the the inner cities, uh, right, are, are predominantly people of color, black people of color. We do know that these are really just simple, false characterizations about how really heterogeneous urban America is. In addition to, I guess, rural America, it's a misnomer that it's all white. Uh, in fact, uh, uh, twenty one percent. Uh, people of color of uh, people uh, people of color live in rural America. It, it, the the idea that uh, let's say a uh, persistent poverty uh, is an inner city urban problem, which has been around since the 
since for a hundred years this this idea that conflation of of poverty in the inner inner city with the some of the worst poverty in the United States is in rural areas. The poverty rates are higher in rural areas, right? Mm. So I, I think that. It, it, there's this certainly this perpetuation of the of n- the narrative that's there about both urban areas and what they are, but in addition to rural areas too, and and about what what they are, and certainly uh, the good folks that live in both of those areas are really receiving messaging that is certainly not nuances and sometimes just practically not true. Right. Well, on, on that, I, I think I want to um, turn this over to Josh, who in some of our notes preparing this and in some of your previous answers, I think really wanted to kind of push back against such a clear division, which is in some ways perpetuated and encrusted in our outlook by media narratives and the way media, the media covers politics. And it's not that it, there's nothing there, but perhaps it gives us a false sense of a binary that is far more complicated. And I think Josh pointed to it earlier, Jeff, um, is built upon it. So I want to turn back to Josh in this notion that Black Americans or by and large non-white Americans, people of color are concentrated in urban areas and rural areas are the bastion of white Christian, you know, mega church attending people. And, and that if you, let's just say you're, you're from, not from the United States, or even if you are from the United States, but you've lived mostly in urban areas, and then you watch how politics and society is covered in the United States, that would be your impression. Like, okay, pretty much all black Americans live in cities and urban rural areas or less dense areas are all white. And obviously the reality is far more complicated. So I kind of wanted to throw that to Josh. Uh, Jeff makes an excellent point. And I think that's something that's, that, that was on my mind too with that question. First of all, the uh, rural communities are not uh, homogeneously white. And to that, I would add just remember, migratory flows into the United States are often rural to rural, or you have circular migration from Mexico and Central America into Southern California and other places that are so central to agriculture in the United States. And so, you know, I I think the question we started with, you know, what is a city? The boundaries of cities are very blurry things. Let me just describe to you a drive. Kevin, you might have made this drive when you lived in Sacramento, but if you, you know, leave liberal Sacramento, which is a fairly large city of about a half million people now, it's deep blue, um, has a little bit of cultural spillover from the Bay Area for those people who are unfamiliar with California. Um, you head down Highway 16 into the foothills, you pass a lot of real working farms. And what you see um, actually are really long-standing communities of color when you drive through them. And if you take a school bus through there, especially, it's one of the one of the ways that the exurban communities interact with the kind of rural communities around them. And you know what's so striking if if you drive down this road, you drive past farms, you drive past barns, you see workers in all these fields, sometimes doing pretty um, hard work in these fields harvesting. And then if you drive a little further, you'll find a gated community whose demographics, full disclosure, this is partly where I grew up, are almost homogeneously white, 90 plus percent. And I think the the voter registration is 90 plus percent Republican. 
And then you might get the voting tallies that you would expect. You might see the message very receptive on on the urban-rural divide or anti-urbanism and so on. But what you also notice is the complete disconnect between these kinds of agricultural spaces outside the gate and this country club inside the gate, an almost complete lack of interaction except at the local high school where the same school bus would go and pick people up. And so you have this area surrounding this community. Within that, you kind of have this island of a gated community. So what you're seeing, I think, especially in this area, but in a lot of rural spaces, is the same exact trend that you see in cities, and that's gentrification. There, there isn't, I don't think, a hard and fast dichotomy between these places. You know, I think the line is, is very blurry. I just wanted to jump in because I think bringing up these communities that exist outside of Sacramento really brings to mind uh, a phenomenon that you see quite a bit in the South. And this is the, the rise of the gated community. And where, again, drawing upon what Jeff was talking about earlier in terms of urban geography, or in this case, maybe exurban geography or rural geography, where the gated community has become this mechanism for trying to create a, a more isolated space. Um, very often, these communities tend to be um, a much higher percentage white uh, than the surrounding areas they inhabit. Uh, and, and I lived in the South in Virginia um, when I went to college, uh, and I lived in Florida for some time. And it always struck me that in the South, in these kinds of more uh, rural areas, I, I think it's, a, it's very interesting, this phenomenon of the gated community and what it represents and, and conjures in terms of a, a very physical distinction of space and, and a detachment from the surrounding area in that these kinds of gentrified areas, as, as you kind of put it, are not exclusive domains of like Brooklyn or South Philly or, or what have you. These are processes that take place in, maybe we don't want to call them rural, but far less dense, kind of less urban areas. And I think this is an interesting place to turn back to Jeff because you have lived in a southern city. You're from Houston, Texas, and you have now spent a good amount of your life living in Philadelphia, um, in the city there. And I think obviously both, even though they're both U.S. cities, Houston and Philadelphia um, are, are quite distinct in terms of how they exist as urban areas or, or even urban regions. And, and I'm wondering what you kind of draw from your experiences in, in Houston and Philadelphia. I mean, for one, I'm just going to, I'm sorry, Jeff, not, not to, don't want to attack your, I'm not attacking your hometown, but I just don't buy into this that, you know, Houston's a bigger city than Philadelphia. I mean, I guess it's like a hundred miles long. So sure. But I, I'm, I'm not <laughs> buying that at all. Um, you know, this Houston and Phoenix get out of here. Well, you know, Houston and Phoenix has had annexation power, so it, it swallowed up all of those bedroom <laughs> right. communities exactly. that, so you that know. were on the edges uh, to to be create not just the more landmass to to make it geographically bigger, but also more populous. So you actually have a really good point, and that's a good comparison with those two cities to Philadelphia, which Philadelphia no, is not. But, uh, <laughs> no, so I, I'm I'm saying it so in, in somewhat in uh, of course in jest, but um. I do more seriously. Yeah, you know, I think you do as a scholar of, of urban areas and cities have an interesting kind of personal experience. So you know, in terms of what are, what are your experiences living in Houston and Philadelphia, and and, and what kind of distinctions do you see? Oh, uh, uh, so many. And I, I think a formative experience for me is that I grew up in North Houston in the city proper, 
up until I was in high school, moved to a bedroom suburb called the Woodlands and graduated from the Woodlands High School uh, in 1997. I'm dating myself there. I went to Boston College. So I lived in Boston, in Boston for a while. And then uh, next year would be 20 years that I've lived in Philadelphia. Differences in geography, uh, differences in, the, in people and the types of people and uh, the the immigrants that come to those communities, differences in systems in mass transportation. The idea that I do have a car here in Philadelphia, but I couldn't be carless in Houston. Well, I think you just opened up. Um, it's revealing to me just how many things are tied up with this rural, urban, or density issues of, of high density, low density dynamics. And th- that is transportation how we move uh, and in your comparison of the requirements of having a car or the necessity of having um, um, a car depending on where you live. I mean, you noted it would, it would be very difficult to live in Houston without a car. And that kind of struck to me as these stories I read about people struggling with economic difficulties, living in places like Detroit or Houston and, and riding buses two, three, four hours a day to work, right? Uh, so that you know, even if if you if you live in these places, uh, you can be almost required because of the way we've organized our infrastructure. I, re- I remember reading about this one woman's commute. I think it was in Detroit. It floored me. I mean, she worked maybe ten miles, sixteen kilometers for for those using the metric system, uh, from where she lived, and it took her about three hours on a bus to get there. She had to change three or four times. I mean, you know, sixteen, ten, ten miles, sixteen kilometers is a, a bit to walk back and forth, obviously, each day. So they had to take transit. But the way the buses work, it took her three hours each way to get there. And so there's that issue of, of how um, we are constrained by um, the availability of transportation. But I think it brings to me this, this other kind of issue that we talked about density and how it shapes us as, as human beings in, in ways that maybe we're not fully kind of always thinking about. Um, obviously, for, for good reason, we have other things to focus on. But something I focus on a lot because I, I have never owned a car by choice. I've driven quite a bit. I have a license and, you know, and so forth, but I've just made it a choice not to buy a car is just how we move. Our, our form of movement in our day-to-day lives is, is very important in shaping us as human beings, um, be that cars, buses, whether you're commuting, whether you're taking a train, whether you're walking, riding a bike, what have you. And it's not to say one is better or the other, or one is, you know, this is just my own preferences. To me, though, it has driven home the fact that how we move, you know, extremely tied to um, these issues of density and rural and urban in day-to-day life is very significant in terms of our lives as social beings. You know, the person who takes the subway to work is going to have a very different life than the person who lives in a suburb and drives, you know, sits in traffic. Um, for an hour and a half a day driving to their job. That's just a, that's literally a different way of existing. Um, I don't want to be too grandiose here, but I mean, I, it really, not having a car has lead, led me to really focus on, on how we move really affects us. So I don't know, Josh, what do you think about that? Well, earlier we were talking about segmentation within the city and private transportation, e.g. your automobile you know, car-dependent cities have been a big factor in that. There's a, 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 in the death and life of great American cities, Jane Jacob launches kind of an attack on the Los Angeles model of the city, 
where she likens it to like this sort of safari where you drive from a safe place to another safe place past all this urban decay and crime uh, and so on. And oh, I thought you were going to talk about the idea of uh, gathering a whole bunch of aspiring uh, actors in one city as a, as a terrible idea, but go ahead. <laughs> No, I think it's a great idea. You can make a city an entirely different thing with actors. <laughs> um, well, I know a person who knows a person who knows that person. And let me tell you what, I'm going to be able to set you up, Josh, okay? I, I, that's actually why I'm here in the caves to audition. <laughs> I'm, hoping, I'm hoping someone out there is, is listening to my elocution. <laughs> okay, so go ahead. Sorry to interrupt. There is a correlation between metropolitan Gini coefficients, which are used to measure income inequality in a society, and car dependency. And uh, that's kind of a forgotten variable when we talk about inequality. And I think you illustrated it, Kevin, in you know, exactly the way it happens. If you can't afford a car, you're left out. Or if you have a car, you're left out. If you're far away or there's congestion, between where you live and where you are and where employment markets are. Um, so in some ways, the value of density that we talked about at the beginning of the show is kind of lost if uh, you know, you're in a car-dependent city where there's induced demand for driving and um, there's tremendous congestion. And um, it, it's not talked about all that much except through some fantastic research that the Brookings Institution and others do showing this correlation. But the uh, lack of investment in our public transit system is a pretty big and pretty resolvable factor in urban inequality because it restricts people's access to the things they might need, starting with perhaps a job, but many other things. Mm. Well, I think uh, on that note, I, I like the way that you tied this notion of transportation to inequality, right? And I think these are the things where there's all of these kinds of forces or sets of institutions or various manifestations of decisions that are being made that reflect certain preferences or values that have a fundamental effect on our contentment, um, our ability to live fulfilling lives and, and lives that provide for our health and well-being that are not only known, but what's studied extensively, but in somehow, it, it's not like a conspiracy, but I, I really like that you pointed out that, you know, there's all this research, there's the Brookings Institute and all these things. These are not things that we don't know about. These are not things that we don't understand, but these are things that somehow are never part of the, of the discourse. I mean, in, in a very conscientious and forward way. I mean, we do see everyone's, everyone's bemoaning the, the poor infrastructure in the United States as just kind of a secular fact. Oh, the United States, the infrastructure, it sucks. Oh, that's too bad. We need to, let's, let, everyone agrees, let's have a, the, the Democrats and Republicans are going to work on infrastructure and that's going to be, you know, and then um, people on the, on the media will praise them, right? And, and that's kind of the way we think about it without really understanding how much it conditions our experiences in, in very fundamental ways and how much it limits the potentiality and the quality of life for others. And I mean, you know, we haven't even cracked the issue of the environmental aspects and where sites of pollution and, and, and significant pollution are concentrated in minority communities and cities and, and, and elsewhere, right? I mean, that's another way in, in the way transportation. I mean, one of the best examples um, to kind of take maybe what seems to be a, a bit of a nebulous point and put a finer point on it is 
the DC Metro, um, which notably, um, maybe a lot of you aren't, you know, for listeners that aren't familiar with DC, uh, you might have heard about the famous like Georgetown cocktail parties. Like Georgetown is this very Tony um, place where a lot of elite policymakers or maybe better said wannabe elites, people who think they're important, go to kind of hang out and hobnob and, and so forth. Yeah, well, there's not a metro stop anywhere near Georgetown. That's not a mistake. That's not like they designed the metro system in D.C. and like, oh, we forgot Georgetown. Well, <laughs> right. And if you look at Philadelphia, <laughs> I mean, you know, let's look at Philly and the subways that serve North Philadelphia, South Philadelphia, West Philly and the um, regional rails. I mean, there's a temple stop, which is in North Philly, um, where the university is. Uh, there is a North Philadelphia stop on one of them. But by and large, those regional rails don't stop in um, minority, um, uh, uh, majority neighborhoods um, in Philadelphia. I mean, they, they, they are basically, if you look at the map of the Philadelphia transit system, you have the regional rail system, which is to bring suburban people back and forth from the city. And you have the subway, which is to bring people within the city. That's, it's not 100%, but that's the, the, the basic layout. And again, those things are not like mistakes or or, you know, and, it, and it's not a conspiracy. It, it, these things are often, these planning was probably done all in the public, right? So I don't know. I mean, what, what do you think about this, this idea of kind of transportation and, and, and so forth, Jeff? Um, just the development of it in the United States. If, first of all, uh, I think we've already discussed that divide between the private and the public transportation and in our institutions. We, uh, often favor all of the and uh, fund all of the private sector right as a private vehicles and have played preference with that even through our public funding via the interstate highway system that's uh, our suburban bedroom communities were built around those uh, those highways right and then unlike uh, other parts of the world like Europe where public transit systems more or less uh, just were subsidized, differently one and the communities that were built around them were significantly different right and uh, lending itself to a differences in how our cities looks in the geography i have to attest that in the the united states at least um, the idea that there is going to be some kind of uh, really significant change in 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 mass transit is going to perhaps have to require a cultural change uh, insofar that uh, folks will book their, auto, their their private transportation systems, the automobile, right, in favor of mass transit. But with, with, interestingly, alternative systems like Uber, Lyft, et cetera, we started to realize that, that, that even with some of those forms of systems, they were dominating urban spaces. So mm -hmm. um, that idea is just, uh, of uh, how the mass transit system may shape in the future will probably shape as crises shape and but the crises that uh, have we were, have been confronted with in the last ten years that I thought would give uh, would shed some light to the the requirement of a robust transportation system in in all of the largest metropolitan 
areas didn't work. The, the increases in the gas prices to five dollars a gallon, I thought may may have been been one one cause, and that didn't shake it up. And the, the second, interestingly, there's a highway in uh, Interstate 10 that goes uh, the east to west. It's the same Interstate 10 that starts in Los Angeles and, and ends in uh, Florida. If you were to drive coast to coast, right in that section of I-10 that runs through Houston, do you know, is 10 lanes on each side, <laughs> right? So the, the idea that um, there is one time I, I uh, visited uh, Houston, uh, and it had to be maybe about five years ago, remember sitting in traffic with eight to 10 lanes. I think it's 10 lanes on each side, but all of us were stopped and thinking, okay, is it, is it time? We've reached the crises that our infrastructure has just been inundated by the amount of population density. That is, this is really a question of sustainability, right? It's just not sustainable. But those breaking points, you think that would be implications to where, to be going towards the next step, particularly politically, actually didn't happen. And uh, maybe I was just naive to think that, uh, you know, that there would be some turning points then. And, right. Um, yeah, not, not much has happened since then, but certainly a question of, of long-term sustainability because um, those things uh, eventually will have to change. Well, it really is fascinating. And I think I, I like the way you described that epiphany sort of moment as you're sitting in a 20-lane highway on both sides and snarled in traffic and saying, well, this has got to do it. Because these things do massively harm our quality of life. Um, sitting in traffic, Having, you know, having to take four buses to get 10 miles or 16 kilometers from your house. All of these things make life very difficult and, and, and very hard. And increasingly, not just for perhaps we could say that it was concentrated in poorer communities and minority communities. And that might be a reason it was ignored. But if we start thinking about the difficulties that even people who are wealthier or relatively more affluent or middle class living in the suburbs, I mean, this way of living, of just sitting endlessly in traffic has got to be very deleterious on people's kind of mental well-being, physical well-being, psychological well-being, and, and, and so forth. And that, you know, at some point, like, like Jeff was saying, it's like, it seems like people just snap and demand that this be front and center, not just for convenience, but for literally living a, a better life, a, a more fulfilling life. I think everyone would agree a life where you're spending large portions of your time sitting on a kind of interstate, um, large highway, just listlessly driving at, at, at slow rates is, is not anything anyone's in favor of, right? It's not like anyone, no one's like really enjoying that, but yet somehow um, there's such a stasis in responding to them. And, and I, I just, I, to me, yeah, the, the lack of action to, to echo what Jeff said is fascinating. So at this point, Oh, man, I, I think we're going to have to reconvene, uh, gentlemen. I mean, there, we just, oh, I feel like we've opened up so much. I, I kind of want to keep digging. But in the interest of our listening audience who, speaking of time and limitations, I, I think we want to maybe just round the turn towards one of the kind of finishing, you know, we started large, kind of narrowed in on, on urban politics in the U.S. And uh, for now, maybe it's best to just wrap up the idea of urbanization and trying to zoom back out a little and just think about what it means in terms of its global and historical implication, right? And the roles of cities and shaping, uh, for lack of a better term, the modern world. Uh, and so maybe we'll, we'll turn to Josh first and then uh, come to Jeff for some kind of thoughts on that. Yeah, right. 
you know, I would say that cities are a new thing. I think 3200 BCE is not all that long ago. And the jury is still out on, you know, whether this experiment is truly sustainable or whether we are accelerating toward real irreversible disaster. And so I think, you know, as far as cities as drivers of the modern world, I would say the principle has remained the same. I think instead of cuneiform we tablets, we've got fiber optic cables and an immeasurable bandwidth with which to control and extract resources, including human resources, around the world. So cities are doing what they've done for at least 5,000 years, but they're doing so at this dramatically accelerated pace. So when we talk about modernity, e.g., you know, cities as shapers of the present and future, I think really uh, the jury is still out on whether cities were ever a good thing. (laughs) People who know me know I love the city. And obviously, cities are, I, I, I think, you know... Um, Josh, you they, just they lost your invite to all of those trendy Manhattan cocktail parties you go to. <laughs> like, monocles are popping across the Upper East Side right now. <laughs> they are breaking oh, Josh, across the Upper East Side. You, but I think you have an, an appointment in Nebraska, since you'll love it there so Even much. the... Mo- yeah. <laughs> Even the monocle I'm wearing right now just cracked. <laughs> I get an image that Josh is sitting um, in the Upper East Side in, in, his, in his apartment um, and basically dressed like the Monopoly man. <laughs> <laughs> you got to make that voice do to go with it. <laughs> <laughs> and you just read the New York Times and you, you basically open the New York Times and you pack like seven monocles that are going to break because <laughs> with each section. Um, <laughs> <laughs> and then you have you have tea with your wife and discuss the latest um, things in the society pages. Oh, that sounds kind of oh, nice. The almost. Taylor boy is marrying marrying the Johnson girl. Unbelievable! Quite a match there. <laughs> I wonder what country club they're going to join. All right, sorry. <laughs> I'm sorry. No, I lost my no, train no, of thought, no. sir. I, yeah, I, I stole it from you. I, I, I stepped on your train of thought. Sorry, um, but I could, I couldn't help it. Um, that just that the image came in my mind. I had to say it. But no, I, I think you were saying this idea of whether cities are a good idea at all, or whether they're sustainable. Uh, that's right. Well, there's that. Well, there's that famous line from The Usual Suspects. I, I don't know. Maybe it was from somewhere else, but I know it from The Usual Suspects. Uh, the greatest trick the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he doesn't exist. And it's like, I think the greatest trick capitalism ever pulled was convincing the world that resources are infinite. That, and, and that's just mm-hmm. not true. And, and Jeff mentioned Uber, and we can think about Amazon as, I think, kind of emblematic of this, right? That they present themselves as these technology companies, and they have very, you know, especially Uber, I've used it. It has a very flashy app, and it car tracking, and it looks like a video game. I mean, it, it's very enthralling. But behind that is someone who's working in often uh, not optimal work conditions, not being treated as a full-time worker, not getting any benefits, um, struggling often, um, perhaps, you know, having to sacrifice time with their family, have to maintain their car and, and so forth, right? It's a very physical, material thing, consuming gas. I mean, we could talk about whether like a bunch of people riding in Ubers is really the best way to handle um, mass transit problems, but it, it, it renders itself as this flashy app or Amazon. You're, you're clicking, you're filling up your shopping cart. I use Amazon. You know, it's a, it's a pretty slick process, but behind that are people 
working extremely hard and extremely difficult and in often abusive conditions in these warehouses, packing boxes. And Polanyi talks about this, right? The way capitalism as a system detaches us and makes us lose touch with the basis for what we're eating, what we're drinking, what we're consuming, the microphone I'm using right now, um, and, and so forth. That these things are not just the, the bastion of some, we're not drawing from some infinite pool of resources. Um, and, and I think the limits of urbanization, as Josh was in indicating, is, is part and parcel to that issue. Uh, and so on that, I wanted to kind of uh, throw it over to Jeff and, and reflections on modernity and, and urban life in the U.S. or the world um, um, more generally. Oh, I, I'm in awe, Kevin. I, I just, it's hard for me to get my, to wrap my mind around the scale of these entities. The, the, the fact that there are projections that we could have metropolises, right, that are 50 million people. It, it is something so daunting to me that uh, it makes me question uh, really the idea of the resiliency, right? The word we like to use in urban affairs about the potential of the city to survive. And, and the, it, because of the scale, it comes the effects of the crises, as Josh alluded to, right? Particularly concerned about climate change, right? Concentrated poverty. Also, extraneous threats like terrorism, all that are embedded into these areas. But it is just the sheer rate of urbanization to me that, uh, that we know these are certainly pressing concerns that are urgent just because of the how many people uh, are in them. And I, I agree with Josh, a, a, a continued experiment. Uh, but the one that at the pit of my stomach is uh, makes it churn a little bit because of the scale. And I think that's something that when you talk about this issue of scale, that's something that I have trouble also fathoming. We've talked in, in some sense, and I think you know appropriately so, that's where maybe our, our background in terms of our own um, lives and, and, and research might be uh, more better to speak of in, in, a, in a bit of a more authoritative sense, but we're, we're not even getting into these mega urban areas in the global south or quote-unquote developing countries. I'm thinking of Lagos, Nigeria or um, Manila in the Philippines. Um, that these almost, it, it's, it's on a scale and that's why I like, you know, Jeff um, brought that up. It's on a scale that it, I read about Lagos, Nigeria and these, how it just grows almost month by month and increasingly these kind of makeshift communities of, of you know, corrugated steel and, and, and hand-built houses. And, you know, we could also think about Sao Paulo and Brazil. And in some ways, these urban areas are sites of all of these economic opportunities. So, it makes perfect sense that these are where people are migrating. But on the other hand, it, it pushes against the notion of how much that it can be sustained. Um, and I forget, what was the term you used, Jeff, that is common? Um, resiliency. Yes. Like how res resilient. You know, I, I mean, I, I read articles on, on Lagos, Nigeria, and, and I guess in, intuitively it, it, it makes sense to me. But I mean, I, I can understand what the article is writing about, but it's on a scale and of a proportion that's so beyond anything that is immediate to my experience that it's hard for me to really fathom. And so maybe we'll turn it one more time to Josh on this notion of, of maybe giving you know a little taste of thinking about cities in, in this global perspective, particularly these um, burgeoning like mega urban areas in the, in the global south in particular. 
Oh, absolutely. I think when you when we we talk about the growth of megacities, you know, this is deeply connected with the urban rural divide. At the end of the last decade, uh, the majority of the world's population lived in cities. And uh, what we're seeing is the uprooting rural modes of living on, you know, what, what happened in Britain in the 19th century is now happening on a planetary scale. Um, and whether people want to or not, they are essentially being economically forced to migrate into cities. Um, that's one part of the equation. You know, the other part of the equation uh, that we should also not forget is that when we think about where the city begins and ends, and I think your description of cities in the global south, where, where the city's dominion over the land, I think, you know, it, the, the city's dominion over the land is almost total. There is very little land outside cities that is not in some way impacted by human activity directed from within cities. And so what we're seeing is, in, in some sense, the environmental consequences of urbanization have come to pass. I mean, we are living in a kind of, for lack of a better term, science fiction world. I'm thinking maybe like a, a Philip K. Dick story or Blade <laughs> Runner, where yeah. the whole planet has become artificial. Mm, right. Um, and, you know, the, the question ahead of us is, you know, will we face a kind of massive reconfiguration of how we live? Because these cities are growing and uh, Lagos, part of it is floating. Right. <laughs> you know? And, and, you know, I just read recently that, that just wherever you are, pick your place on the map, the, the amount of construction that's being built in California right in wildfire, potential wildfire areas. You know, so cities are growing into these hazards that they're creating. Well, and, and it, it, you know, I just bears mentioning that, of course, when we're talking about these megacities cannot be decoupled from what Josh kind of called these global financial centers and in, in, in the kind of scope of how the world is organized and how distribution is organized and legitimized, both historically, going back to colonialism, which wasn't that long ago, to even the politics of the Cold War and post-Cold post War period. You know, so I, I don't want to come across as saying like, oh God, Lagos, Nigeria, it's, what a problem they have. I mean, certainly their problem is a global problem. Um, and I think that's something that the scope of, of these issues has become so transnational, but structure is still rooted in the nation state and, and state boundaries that it, it becomes a very difficult issue to approach. We have problems that require like a set of tools. Like we, we have we have a toolbox that has all the wrong tools. Like we have a toolbox full of screwdrivers and we need hammer, if that makes any sense. So maybe that's as good a place as any to leave it. Well, there's so much more, obviously, I would love to talk about and, and, and unpack in terms of all the interesting topics we were able to get to in this episode. But uh, I think it's just as good a place as any to wrap it up. So I want to thank our guests, Professor Josh Leon and Professor Jeffrey Carroll so much for joining us. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you, Kevin. I hope everyone has a wonderful day wherever and whenever you're listening to this. We'll look forward to catching up with you for our next episode in a few weeks. Thanks again and have a great day.
Thank you.